Good morning, everyone. Good morning. 11 o'clock, TikTok is a song by the Irish band U2. It may even have been the first single, remember them, that I ever bought. The myth makers tell us that the title was inspired by Bono being late for a meeting with a friend who simply wouldn't wait and so left a note, 11 o'clock, tick tock. That song is frequently misquoted in our household. On school days, it's often 7 o'clock, get up, tick tock. But Sunday, it's more like 9 o'clock, tick tock, because church doesn't start until half past 10. But over the summer, my nine-year-old was selected to play county football. And they train on Sundays at 11 o'clock, tick-tock. So now it's 9 o'clock, tick-tock, kick-off soon. It also means that one of our church-going adults has to take him there. When all our lives we have spent it as a family. The community of faith, worshipping the Father, following Jesus, seeking to live in the Spirit of God who commands us, keep the Sabbath holy. So Sunday, the Sabbath, used to be a time for discipling us together. But it is less so now. Our time is being discipled by other powers. Now, not every family will begin with that unity of faith or purpose and addressing an alternative diversity would be a much longer paper. But the following remarks reflect my own unresolved reflections, so thank you for letting me try out my angst with you all. Can we better disciple our time? For I am convinced that Sabbath lies at the heart of Christian practice. But I equally believe we might need to be more creative with our understanding of Sabbath than some of our more legalistic ancestry. My son was first to see an alternative. He had a vested interest. And he asked, does Jesus say we have to meet on Sunday at 11? And I admitted that my Lord and Savior did not say so. I tried to unpack a bigger Sabbath picture too that wasn't filled with the thou shalt not and tie up the swings in the park of my Northern Irish youth. And while I am confident that God will have the final victory, there was something in those conversations with my son that suggested football might do rather well in the home leg of this competition with heaven only coming good in the aggregate score. In the midst of this, and perhaps subconsciously seeking guidance, I picked up a book by Walter Brueggemann entitled Sabbath as Resistance, saying no to the culture of now. And Brueggemann makes a compelling case for Sabbath keeping. For him, Sabbath is not only a way of resisting the demands of the world around us that he likens to Pharaoh's demands on the Hebrew slaves in Egypt, but it's also about creating an alternative reality. For him, Sabbath is what Adam uh, Harrelson has called a holy no. The no given by Hebrew midwives hiding Moses and the Syrophoenician woman troubling Jesus. The no of the psalmists who will not sing of songs of Zion to be mocked by the shores in Babylon. And the no of Jesus who from the empty tomb will not let sin or death have the final word. But such no's are only offered in service of a greater yes. 
They stoke the holy process of subversion and they say yes to God's alternative realities. And as Brueggemann notes, the Sabbath command is not just about rest. In Deuteronomy 5, Moses roots Sabbath in the Exodus as a time when the abusive powers of Pharaoh's slavery are disrupted. Remember the Sabbath, it says, for if you do not, effectively, you will live lives enslaved by the fallen powers of this world. So remembering the Sabbath is not simply a no, but also a yes on which we lay the foundations of a redeemed community. And we are used to thinking of such redeemed communities, our churches, being rooted in a particular place. It's usually a building like this where we declare our physical presence on the world. And some, drawing on that imagery used about the church at Philippi, have described those visible communities as colonies of heaven, embassies of the kingdom, outposts of shalom, planted here upon the earth. In contrast, Rabbi Abraham Heschel says that honouring the Sabbath is the great cathedral of Jewish people. As a cathedral occupies space, he says Sabbath ought to occupy time. A culture without cathedrals of a Sabbath, he says, becomes simultaneously hyperactive and exhausted, overstimulated and bored, constantly consuming but never satisfied. It is, suggests Brueggemann, a society in which everyone is coerced to perform better, to produce more, to consume more. It is, he says, an inequitable society of haves and have-nots. And then he says this. You do not have to do more, he says, arguing for a day that is free of Pharaoh's schedule. And amen, I reply. You don't have to sell more, he says. And again, I reply, amen. You don't have to control more, says Brueggemann. Again, I say, amen. You do not have to have your kids in ballet or soccer on this day. And I reply, well, hold on a minute. My lad worked really hard. For that place on the team. Brueggemann is not distracted. He continues. Sabbath is the one day that breaks the pattern. Of societal coercion. And economic compulsion. Sabbath says to those who keep it holy. We all have equal worth. Equal value. Equal access. Equal rest. Resistance is not futile. But saying no to the pharaohs of this world. Begins with Sabbath making space. For a holy yes. So, which one am I? I worried. Am I enslaved to modern pharaohs? Have I failed to protect my offspring? And it brings other questions. Should Sabbath be imposed on family members, even if we do share faith? And more difficult, what if my family doesn't share my faith? Families are often more complex than many of the books written on Sabbath might suggest. Still I wonder, could Sabbath rescue us? Could we rescue Sabbath? Could we better disciple our time against the powers of the world? And I find others asking similar questions. The theologian and poet Nicholas Lee has written recently about the Sabbath as the hidden heartbeat of her life, pulsing through her struggle to work full time in an academic environment without making herself ill or endlessly exhausted without sacrificing her inner creative life. 
and talking to academics and pastors and students and parents, it seems there are many powers at work, pharaohs, whose reach is deeper and wider than Sunday football. But if Sabbath truly is our temporal cathedral, how ought we to be discipling time? And Brueggemann speaks of a discipled Sabbath. He does so in the context of the pharaohs of the Bible, particularly their insatiable desire for construction projects and the necessary production of bricks, both with and without straw. But there's also the sense in which Pharaoh becomes the physical embodiment of systemic powers and principalities that we read of in Ephesians 6. Our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with powers and principalities, rulers and authorities of this world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And Walter Wink argues that these powers are more than just the pharaohs who control societies on earth. They are wider and deeper. They are systems themselves and the institutions and structures that weave society into an intricate fabric of power and relationships. They also include the spirituality at the core of those institutions and structures. These powers determine the structures of our world in ways that often defy the lordship of Christ and reject the kingdom of Shalom. And you and I and our churches may no longer pay explicit homage to Kronos or Moneta or Mercury or Cupid or Mars. But according to Wink, the fact that our modern world dismisses such powers as classic fable only enables fallen authorities of time and money and speed and sex and violence to strike from concealment and craze and cripple us without us having the slightest comprehension as to what has just happened. It is in the Sabbath, however we practice it, that church can locate a holy no of resistance to the powers and a yes to God's gift of shalom. And I want to suggest that Kronos is one of those fallen powers that Wink would have us name and unmask and engage and ultimately redeem. Chronos, from which we get our words chronology and chronograph, is the personification of 11 o'clock tick-tock time itself. It's the pantheon of ancient deities. He is the power that waits for no one, marching on relentlessly. You and I find it hard to be still and know that God is God because Kronos tells us those seconds could be more productive. We should be making bricks, not praying. And if we're not making things, we should be making something of ourselves. And in this unholy alliance with other powers like wealth and pride, in a world where time is commoditized, it is time is money after all. These false gods of speed and greed and violence and so many more have gathered round an axis of chronos driven time. And they are the powers that for the most part go unchallenged. And the church has too often and too easily been seduced by what they say. But the conjuring of Kronos can be resisted through Sabbath. If it is named for what it is, if it is engaged to the church's worship, if it is redeemed through our mission. And perhaps that begins by reclaiming the notion of Kairos time. 
Now, I do appreciate the irony of adopting Kairos, another classical deity, to make this point. But for some time, Kairos has been, there's been a redeemed notion of Kairos as a counterpoint to Kronos. Kairos is a God-appointed time to do something. Traditionally, the appropriate moment. That second when an arrow might be fired and penetrate the enemy's defences. And here the potential for Sabbath and Sunday worship, as well as the rhythms of faithfulness that we discover in the cycle of the liturgical year, might offer rich potential for saying a holy no to the powers and pharaohs of the world, and a holy yes to the alternative patterns of living found within God's kingdom. It's evidenced, perhaps most immediately, in the dilemma of choosing to worship on a Sunday to begin with. From an early point in the church's history, Sunday was the primary time for Christians to worship. Not only a day to remember Jesus' rising from the dead, but importantly also that the resurrection was understood to be an eighth day. A day to imagine how to live the virtues of a new and alternative community. It was a time for practicing recreation of the kingdom living, performing the promises of a new heaven and a new earth. So the early church kept Sunday special, albeit in a time when Sunday was a day like any other day. They they disciplined their time over and against the chronos of their time. And as Christianity emerges out of its Jewish roots, many of the countercultural imperatives commanded by Sabbath get subsumed into and adopted into Sunday. But over further time, their potential for forming radical character has given way to the unrelenting demands of Kronos in tandem with powers of jealousy and consumption, Nvidia, uh, Eresia and Bacchus, you can look them up. Thus our cultural reality is one where people are driven to want more, to have more, and to consume more. In such a world, a specific time for worship, my 11 o'clock TikTok, can face fierce competition from the demands of employment, leisure opportunities, including football. In short, the powers conspire to make Sunday a treadmill of production and consumption like any other day. To change sport for a moment and to borrow from a cricketing theologian, Rob Ellis, it's hard to know whether Sunday is the Lord's Day or a day for going to Lord's. (laughs) That'll be the bit you remember. (laughs) For the church to imagine an alternative Sabbath reality, it's vital that they retain a time that offers us not only rest from these powers, but also imagines alternative patterns of resistance. Not least, as Ellis again suggests, to develop Sabbath as a time of playful recreation. That specific time need not of necessity be a Sunday. And given the competing demands for people's time, there ought to be some sympathy for missional and for pastoral initiatives that seek to engage people in worship and Sabbath on other days. But if we do that, the church also needs to ask, what is lost from this discipline of character if ground is ceded too easily to the powers of Kronos? Without the practice and performance of a community-observed Sabbath, we risk forgetting what we were instructed to remember in Deuteronomy. This day when we disciple time and declare a holy no to powers that would reduce our fellow human beings and creation to consumable commodities rather than beloved co-creations of God. 
Reclaiming a rhythm shapes Christians into what A.J. Swoboda calls subversive Sabbath communities, where discipling time has far-reaching consequences on our attitudes and practices of work and health, economics and technology, to the marginalized in society. It offers to our climate crisis vital insight to the right relationship between humanity and creation, as well as fundamentally reshaping how we might practice worship and mission. And a parallel argument can be made for how the wider Christian calendar helps the church offer the resistance to such powers. Just as Sunday bears witness to Jesus as Lord of life, so too the liturgical year is structured to name, unmask and engage the chronos axis that would oppose Christ's authority and run roughshod over Sabbath. John Caldwell and more more recently Paul and Andy Goodliffe have reminded us there is a faithfulness to God's rhythms to be found in remembering key seasons, Christmas and Easter and Pentecost, along with periods of preparation, Advent and Lent, together with significant individual days, Ascension and Epiphany. They punctuate the year with periods that affirm in different ways, Christ is Lord of time. Not a time Lord, that's different. Key events are not just holidays, but need to be reclaimed as holy days. Opportunities for us to disciple time by imagining ourselves into the life of Jesus. And in many cases, the dating of significant moments may have been historically part of combative evangelism, contesting pagan commemorations. So from early days, the 6th of January was associated with the baptism of Christ, symbolizing new birth uh, granted to believers. But it was the same day as pagans drew water from the Nile to remember the birth of Ion, God of time and eternity. And Stephen Burns notes that the church may have been here making a bold statement about time and eternity being both the gift and subject of Jesus. And indeed, David Stancliffe argues that the fourfold pattern of worship that shapes so much of what we do on a Sunday reflects the whole of the liturgical year. Every Sunday of the year is a holy no and yes. The gathering period of worship corresponds to Advent when we gather and prepare ourselves for the coming of Christ. What follows in the liturgy of the word is Christmas time, the coming of the word made flesh amongst us. Lent and Easter are associated with the Eucharist and again we are instructed specifically to remember through bread and wine who we are in the death and resurrection of Christ. And finally the dismissal is that moment of Pentecost when the disciples are sent out as we are in the power of the Spirit and mission. In consciously discipling our communal time As a response to the life and mission of Jesus, the structure of the Christian year resists the dominion of Kronos and functions to show Christ until he comes again and testifies to the Holy Spirit indwelling the the church in the meantime. Thus, despite significant festivals being partly colonized by the powers, like Christmas, for those who attend the cycle of Christian year, there is tremendous Potential for Sabbath and its worship to lead people afresh into the defining moments of salvation history. Its suffering, its waiting, its victories, each allowing us to become alive to the present power of Christ in our lives. And if TikTok time of calendars is discipled like this at 11 or any other hour of the day, then as Stanley Hauerbus suggests, the regular continual patterns of gathering for worship can be viewed as the church's rehearsal. 
Worship becomes a kind of performance before the performance, a preparation beforehand for whatever witness the church might be asked to give in the world after we leave. In that way, Sabbath worship allows the church to emerge into its true nature and become what Bonhoeffer says it ought to be for that day and every day, a section of humanity where Christ has truly taken form. 11 o'clock, tick-tock on a Sunday, had always been a time for my family to rehearse being Christian, a time to be disciplined in worship, to be formed in virtue and value and character through prayers and praise and preaching. We might not always have been conscious of it, but this was how we practiced and rehearsed and learnt how to perform, that Christ was Lord, not Kronos, not Pharaoh, not Caesar, not even football. And this is a truth it seems we must cling to and at least recreate in some other ways. And if we've chosen in some ways to be absent from its traditional incarnation, then at least we do so conscious of what we might be forgetting on the way and with a commensurate determination to discover new cathedrals in time, new rhythms, alternative patterns by which we discipline our time and say a holy no to Kronos and his fallen TikTok powers. For this is surely how we find the time to say a holy yes to Jesus who remains Lord of the Sabbath. And we have time for questions. Um, so, uh, opportunities, there's a fairly sizable group here, so I'm guessing there's going to be a few questions coming. So, uh, stick your hand up, let's have some questions. Do, do you think that um, sometimes if churches change the time of their services, let's say, for example, to four o'clock on Sunday afternoon, they've done that partly to try and fit in with what other things are going on so the sabbath has or at least that aspect of the sabbath has become led by what's going on out there so let's take sunday morning football so say half the congregation are involved in that in some way so let's shift our service to accommodate that what what are your views on on whether that is a a trend that Um, we could adopt sometimes i think there are um very valid um, times when churches through missional or through pastoral often both considerations have said this is not a good time for us 11 o'clock or half 10 comes from when we milked cows traditionally and where I grew up that was okay because people did milk cows and then go to church where I live now that's not so common Um, so you know, that time is, is culturally located in, in, in a culture that is no longer here. Moving it to a different time is a very valid thing to do. But often I think it is about more about how do we get people into church rather than a deeper reflection on how will we enable Sabbath to be practiced by these people. Um, so, you know, you can move it to four. That doesn't help because my daughter's in the drama classroom too. So... <laughs> And we have, and so you know, this, I don't have answers to this. This is really me kind of externalizing my angst and family problems and trying, <laughs> trying to work out what we're supposed to do. So thank you for, for being my therapy. Um, but it does come from a genuine question of what is Sabbath for us and how do we practice that communally? 
because when I mentioned that Ewan had got to, to the, the football stuff and this was going, my, my pastors were great. And my pastor said, what, what other way could we do church that would enable you and other boys of that ilk to come? They were great in making that pastoral and missional response. And that's fantastic. But I think there is something deeper to be asked about the rhythms of Sabbath in our lives. Thank you for a fantastic paper, Craig. I wonder to what extent some of the underlying frame of this is a Protestant work ethic and capitalism. Um, and I say that as someone who has, well, a godson who for many years has played football on a Sunday. But actually what underpinned that was this almost latent sense of all the parents and guardians turning up hoping that their son would be the next one Absolutely. who would be discovered and therefore the path to riches mm-hmm. capitalism was even underplaying what was notionally a nice good sort of communal event where boys were playing football with friends and were creating community. Absolutely. Um, so there are, there, are, there are two things in, in that. and There, there, there is the, the sense of, will my child be the next great thing? Um, and you know, my son is currently consuming biographies of, of the last year's next best thing and saying, well, that's how we need to do it. And, and there's pressure. Nine years old, there are scouts turning up to games. There is, there is pressure. So there's that side of things that they'll be the dream ticket. Um, but there also is this thing that, that Brueggemann says, that there is this deeper thing of society of even if we're not producing bricks, we want to be making something of ourselves. And there is this sense that time must always be productive. Um, and have an end result and that so in part of the reflections and all of this um, I went back and, and I was watching Chariots of Fire and there's that bit in Chariots of Fire where Eric Little says yeah but but when I run I feel God's pleasure and when I watch you and play there is a sense in which for me as a father not being in church I'm thinking I've got to find something of God's pleasure in this and when I watch him play I think I, I feel God's pleasure in you doing something that you're gifted at doing but there's also this sense where Eric Little says, I'm not running that race on that day. I'll, I'll change race and run a different race. And, and those two messages from the movie, again, kind of just can't work out. But it, it is that constant. And that's where I think, I hope Wink is helpful in saying we need to unmask this because this is deep. There are deeper theological issues uh, 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 at play. There is that Pharaoh kind of coercion at play that... Because, because we don't name these things other than as, as mythical deities, we fail to realize that they are real powers shaping how we live. Uh, and the church don't call them out. I remember rightly, um, Brueggemann says in Sabbath's Resistance that um, a lot of pharaohs, or the, the root of pharaohs' endless production was anxiety. His, his insecurity, yeah. Um, I, I wonder how close churches to fair actually. Uh, <laughs> one of my issues is how um, a lot of what the church does is not very Sabbath-like. It's and um, it's endlessly producing and and performing and um, doing what mm-hmm. being. Absolutely. Have you got anything to say about the anxieties that might be at the root of that? Um they're real. They are not just felt by you. They're felt by most pastors, if not all of them. Uh, I'm thinking back to um, what Eugene Peterson says in his uh, book on the contemplative pastor. 
and he starts off by saying he was in the car going down to his, I think it was to his ordination uh, with a senior pastor and, and somebody asks him what do you do for a living and he said I run a church and he says suddenly that jarred because he didn't want to ever run a church he wasn't the CEO of Ecclesia.com or whatever it was he wanted to be a pastor and I think so many of us get sucked into well we need to have a program for this and a program for that and a disciple group for that and a mission expression of this and we're running all the spinning all the plates and, and I think a lot of it may be down to churches insecurity pastors insecurity that just said what if we didn't at least for a while we're out of time Craig thank time. you thank you very much for listening